You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. As you can probably see, I'm alone in the studio, and Emily's in her respective uh, location. Where, yeah, could... where are you? Are you in the closet? In the closet no, today, or in the camper? Yeah, I'm still in the camper. So if you hear birds, that's why. So we're out in the great outdoors, okay. and you know, my wilderness time hopefully uh, coming to an end soon. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, maybe we'll get you back up here in the next week or two. Um, We'll yeah. see how it goes, but I hope so. I mean, in the meantime, this this is <laughs> this has been working out pretty good. It just it it takes me a little more time on the video editing side of things to really get the to get it all wrapped up. Right, right. Well, and but, the other danger too is you might see a critter wander through. So you know, but everybody loves cats, right? So <laughs> sure. So anyway, well, that being said, let's go on ahead and get to um get back to the Bible because that's what mm-hmm. people are here for, I assume. Right. And we are still in 2 Samuel, what chapter are we in, 12? We're still in 12, and we've still got still quite a okay. bit of 12 to go through, because I kind of, I stretch this one out a lot, just because there's a lot of things that are preached on this, and often it's done without any kind of background or context, so I wanted to take some time to jump into some bigger issues, since they were just all right here. And so we'll finish out this chapter, and then we'll get into Psalm fifty-one. And so I, I kind of I feel can't like remember we, if I specified. So I can't remember if I specified first or second Samuel. This is second, second Samuel, yeah. right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we did, we've made it that far. <laughs> so, but um, yeah, I but I do think uh, we probably need to throw a little bit of warning out there. We are going to be talking about marital rape specifically. I know we've been talking about rape and whether. David did or did not rape Bathsheba, and why or why not? That's a, a good reading of um, this passage, and so um, we're going to kind of get into some more of that. We're going to be talking more. We we ended last week talking about the death of uh, David and Bathsheba's son, and the the death of a child under thirty days, and we didn't really get to go into that. So we're going to talk about that side first, but. This is going to be a rough episode for a lot of people, and I just want, you know, uh, you might want to make sure the littles aren't around and that you just, uh, you you know what you're getting into. So. I mean, I don't even let my daughters listen to our show. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Which is kind of mind boggling when you think that used to, uh, it was tradition to start teaching Torah when children began to speak and speak well. So around three years old. They would begin Torah, but they would begin with Leviticus. And when you think about Wells and Leviticus and teaching a three-year-old, Leviticus is kind of mind-blowing. I, you, you don't see a Veggie Tale episode readily apparent in Leviticus. And so there's a, right. lot, a lot of things that would have to be explained to a child. But the idea on that, and this kind of actually plays in to what I'm getting ready to go into, is that Leviticus is all about purity. And since children were young and they hadn't been blemished by the world, they were very pure. So it made sense that you would teach a pure being, a pure person, laws on purity to help them retain that status. And so, um, you know, there's actually a lot of thought put into it. So 
but we're going to pick up. We're going to talk about um, why a child born under 30 days, uh, how that, well, we're going to talk about how that death was viewed. And the, the primary view is that a child who dies under 30 days old belongs to the Lord. And this is actually all based on scripture. And when I got to putting this together, I just thought it was really great um, because it paints a whole different picture than what we may be accustomed to when we're dealing with um, doctrines like original sin and the total uh, depravity of man and those sorts of things. And where we're told that, you know, well, I've heard preachers just flat out say that, you know, children who die before they're able to make that profession of faith are probably in hell. And if they die before right. they've had a chance to be regenerated, they're probably in hell. I don't see that position supported in any way in Scripture. And that's not the traditional view when you go back to a Judaic view of how to interpret these Scriptures. So I wanted to take some time to go into these Scriptures, look at what the Bible actually says, and um, kind of present, hopefully, a, a, a picture that's a lot more positive and a lot more hopeful in itself to anyone who may have experienced the loss of a child. And, you know, I know most of the women I know have experienced a miscarriage at one point or another. And Mm -hmm. it's very common. And so often women carry a lot of guilt and blame around because of that. They think it's something they did. They worry about the destiny of that child. Where does it fit into the eternal plan of salvation? And so uh, I thought it was just good to just camp out here for a while. But our, our passage, even though we're in 2 Samuel 13 officially, uh, we're actually going to jump back to Exodus 22, verse 28. And Moses has said, you shall not delay to offer the fir- uh, from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses, the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. So this is in Exodus. This is right after they left Egypt. And in Exodus 34, 1920, it's, it, um, gets more specific and it says all that open the womb are mine and it goes into you know list of animals but then it says all the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem and none shall appear before me empty-handed we're going to skip ahead to numbers 18 14 because one of the things to remember when we're talking about the law a lot of times what the, the written torah gives us is basically the headline and it doesn't tell us how to how to apply it or how to enact it and so to, in order to know how to practice this, then you have to look at other passages. And yes, sometimes you have to refer to the oral law to know actually how it was observed. So the next passage that deals with this that would help us explain um, what's going on is Numbers 18, <clears throat> 14 through 16. Every devoted thing in Israel shall be yours. Everything that opens the womb of all flesh between whether man or beast which they offer to the Lord shall be yours. Now God's talking to the Levites here. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man and the firstborn of unclean animals you shall redeem, and their redemption price at the month of one, one <laughs> at one month old you shall redeem them. You shall fix at five shekels. So, in case you didn't catch that, we have at least three different places where God says every firstborn male belongs to Him, that they were supposed to be devoted to the temple. And they're supposed to be used in devotion to the service of the temple. Now, this is Kerem. This is the, that same word where we're talking about the destruction of the, the Canaanite people. And this policy was in place 
before uh, the firstborn going to God before the golden calf. Now, after the golden calf, which is where the verse from Numbers appears, things change because you've got to remember back to that story. And we usually stop the story of Moses comes down the mountain, he's mad, and he confronts Aaron, and we leave it there because the rest of the story is just crazy. So when Moses comes down from Sinai, he's got the, the tablets and um, he sees what's going on. He confronts Aaron and then he calls to um, the people, you know, who's with me, who's for the Lord. And the, the Levites, they respond and they go through the camp and they kill 3000 men. And Moses, after this occurs, he, he tells the Levites, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord. Each one of the cost of his sons and his brother. So this, so that he might bestow a blessing on you this day. This is Exodus 32, 29. So what happens here is the firstborn still belongs to God. But the mm -hmm. firstborn's job was to serve in the temple. Well, now because of what the Levites did in service to the Lord, purifying the camp, getting rid of those idolaters and those who stirred up all the revelry that, that surrounded worshiping the golden calf, now the Levites are going to serve in the temple. This means that the firstborn can be redeemed, like it's discussed in Numbers. And so they can be, the parents take the firstborn to the temple, they offer their five shekels, they receive the child back to them. So now every family within Israel is familiar with this idea and this process of redemption. And so it's only once in this collection of verses that we have the child being the age being specified under the age of 30 days. So before 30 days, the child has not been bought from the Lord. And, and that this is a very important point. And it means that that connection, they, the, the Jewish people saw this connection that this child had with God had not been broken. And so therefore hmm. children in the womb and those who were um, born were under God's direct care, that this was his child still, and they were just caring for this child in the interim. And so what I think is beautiful is the rabbis actually say that women who have children or carry children and have a miscarriage, uh, that they have a special status because they carried a child with no benefit to themselves, and that this child was given directly to God. And so the the they play it out that this this person was supposed to exist and this person was probably so righteous that the world wasn't yet ready for this child as an adult so i, I think that was kind of I, to me that that's that's prettier than a lot of the the, the disturbing things that we hear uh spoken about and i i can see a basis for it in the scripture do they carry it too far maybe i don't know but here's what i do know is god loves children but because the two events, the miscarriage and the, birth, the death of a child before 30 days, were so connected that they're actually observed in the same way. And so there, there's no sitting shiva, there's uh, no funeral, there's no uh, with uh, praying of the Kiddush over them, there's no tombstone. And that's actually a direct outgrowth of what David does here in Second Samuel, because he grieves before the child dies, not after. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's... With this mindset that the rabbis read Psalms 116.15, uh, where David writes, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his holy ones. And so they, they believe that this is in reference to children who die before that 30 days. Now, 
I, I think one of the things we need to remember is when we're looking at this book, this book begins with the story of a firstborn child. And this child was not redeemed. And it's a child who's not returned to the place of worship, not brought before the Ark of the Covenant and the priest until he's weaned. So he misses that 30-day mark. He's not redeemed to, to, uh, from God. And this is a sign that Samuel's life is supposed to be lived before the Lord, that, that Hannah deliberately did not have a child for herself. She had a child to leave with God, not to buy back. And because Hannah didn't receive the child back, she returns the child to God unblemished, and she becomes the model for all women who's ever lost a child, even in death. And it also gives this really beautiful picture of Samuel sleeping by the Ark of the Covenant. That's how these children who, who die before 30 days are, are viewed, that they're, they're with God hmm. sleeping in his presence, just like Samuel was. And Interesting. It, it, it's, I mean, to me, I'm like, why don't we teach this? Why, why aren't we not looking at this and bringing this as a message of hope to women who've gone through this? Because it is so prevalent. Um, but what this does is this unites Hannah and Bathsheba together. And they really do become the mother of a nation and a mother of the movement through the loss of a child. And they and you know Hannah, yes, Samuel's still alive, but he's not there with her, and she has to live knowing that her son is just you know a walk down the street, and she can't be that mother to him. And Bathsheba, it's with the literal death. So, picking up in verse twenty-four of Second Samuel uh, thirteen, it says, "Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and she called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him." So for the first time, Bathsheba is referred to as the wife of David. What we need to remember is under the Torah, she could have refused. Uh, women had the right to reject any man who was proposed to them as a husband. Men didn't. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about that when we talked about, particularly in instances of rape, that the command is there for the man to marry the woman he raped. The woman is not required to marry the man she raped. And so she can say no. He has no right to say no. And it, we have to remember that um, there could have been some very serious repercussions to Bathsheba if she had not married David. Because she, you know, having been with David even once means that she's pretty much off limits to all other men. Remember in this book, sleeping with a woman who's been with a king is pretty much saying, I can take your place on the throne. Uh, she could have been the target for anyone seeking to humiliate David. And marrying David really was the smart thing for her to do. I, I'm not talking about love or romance here. I'm talking about being smart. And she she chose the smart um the the smart route here. Now a lot of people will point to this verse and say, ah, this is this is a gotcha moment because they slept together again and she conceived. And so this is where I'm going to be a little controversial. Imagine that. Um, people think this is a gotcha moment that proves that, that Bathsheba was the evil seductress who was, you know, trying to seduce David from her rooftop. We've talked about how that wasn't even part of the text. And um, the thing is, what people forget is women don't always hate their rapist. And I know that sounds like this... A totally odd thing to say but 
I'm going to offer up one piece of evidence. And it's a, it, this is the hard topic of marital rape. Because there are a lot of women who experience that who will continue to work for the health and the healing of their marriage even after that happens. This happens to a lot of women. And you know, I want to make it very clear. I'm not romanticizing rape as the gateway to love. That, that's not what I'm doing here. I, I'm just saying that it's not necessarily automatic that a woman hates a man who, who does this. And there's lots of psychology papers. I'm going to leave it to people to um, go look those up on their own on online. You can find them. I'm not going to get, um, not going to, to get into the, that side of things. But I think we should also point out that marital rape is real because there's a, there's a trend in the Christian world right now saying that it absolutely cannot happen because if, when you get married, your husband has the rights over all your body and you have no right to refuse. And it's always funny how that conversation goes one way and not the other. Uh, we never talk about the woman's rights over her husband's body, but the Bible does not grant any man, including the husband, unconditional unfettered rights to his wife's body. Uh, now, what it does say is that a wife, that a husband's supposed to love his wife like Christ loved the church, and that a husband should honor his wife. And a wife who who receives these things is going to be inspired to respond very positively, and she's going to want to to make her husband feel loved and wanted in a sexual uh, nature. So. Basically, what I'm saying is, if you ever feel like in your marriage that marital rape is something that's occurring then you need to look at other bigger problems within your marriage that there, there's probably a lack of respect a lack of honor and a lack of caring within the marriage and and that's something that goes both ways that's for men and women so the the other aspect of this is sex didn't have all the baggage that we have acquired over the years in the Christian world. And for most people, sex was a social contract. And the idea that sex was actually reserved for marriage and, and one partner is, was a pretty earth-shattering idea at this point in time. I and mean, we got to remember, Israel's living in a time and place where temple prostitutes were a thing. They were pretty common. It was not uncommon mm -hmm. for every family to offer up at least one daughter, if not every daughter, to spend a certain amount of time as a temple prostitute. Men, all men, were supposed to go visit the temple to engage in the sex with a prostitute. This was normal. And so when you're a part of a culture where sex is so common, it, it's something that you are encouraged to, to participate in not just as a recreational sport, but also as part of your worship, you start to become desensitized to it as something sacred. And I mean, we've, we know this. We can look at advertising today. We, we can watch TV today. We, we get it. What we fail to understand, this idea that sex is sacred and sex is something reserved for marriage, is a direct outgrowth of the Bible. That's not something that was common in any of these ancient cultures. And so it's actually Christianity that, that brought this idea that 
sex is between two loving and committed partners instead of just being some kind of social contract for the gaining of wealth and land and, and what have you. And so when you don't have that baggage, it, it's not it's not as traumatic when that boundary is violated because you didn't know you were supposed to have that boundary to begin with. Now, would Bathsheba and David know that this boundary existed? Absolutely. But they were still a part of a culture where for most people it didn't exist. And so um, for women, a lot of times the question of marriage was as simple as who's going to be able to feed my kids? And that's how they would choose a partner. So for, for Bathsheba to accept David as a husband, and this is what I'm trying to, to make a point, is not saying that what he did was all right or that she even consented in the first place. I'm saying she was probably very emotionally and psychologically prepared to accept the events that happened with a little bit more, um, maybe just being a little bit more analytical about it and a little bit more stoic about it and not having all of the, uh, all the trauma that, that we would have faced because we are living in cultures where there are these boundaries that we expect to be observed and honored. So. Well, and, and like you mentioned before, there was, there's a kind of a social contract element to a lot of uh, sex and marriage back in that time. And if you assume, which I, there's no other children mentioned by Uriah, if you assume that she's now a widow with no kids, mm-hmm. then she has every right to to tell David basically, look, you owe me a son mm-hmm. because uh, you know in the day your children and your family that was your retirement. You know, you yeah. you didn't get uh, social security, you didn't invest in the stock market or things like that, right? So it wouldn't be at all unheard of for her to at least uh, demand a son. Exactly. And, and that, that's the point, is she's doing what works in the economy of their day. And so we have to be very careful not to impose our modern filters and views and values on this, because our modern values and views flow from the fact that we, we moved from this idea where sex is just, hey, it's no big deal, to sex is sacred, and then we were, went through that period of the sexual revolution where it's now sex is no big deal again, but we didn't get to that point where sex is sacred until we went through all these other dynamics and began stripping them away. And so we would have lived mm-hmm. in a very different world had the Bible not addressed sex as specifically and as graphically as it does, and which is the reason why we need to study these passages and not just shy away from them. So David goes in to comfort his, his wife. Again, we're talking about that same word that paraclete is built on, that same root word, comfort, the comforter. And we're seeing that once again, his, his priorities are shifting. He's getting back into alignment. He's comforting the one who, who is supposed to be comforted. And this time, his encounter with Bathsheba is completely different. There's no taking. There's no calling for. There's no, he, 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 he reverses it. He doesn't send messengers to bring her to him. He goes to her. He does not take her. He comforts her. And so this is presented, and that's Augustine, 
Um, so, <laughs> and so it's a, t- yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, so far I've heard a cat and a goat and I saw, uh, Jackson, Jackson. jump up on the back of the couch over there. I took his, so if you're not watching the video feed on this one, you should be. I took um, Jackson's collar off so that, um, he wouldn't be able to rattle <laughs> in, in her ear, but yeah, right. so, uh, and I even made sure the cat food bowl was full, so he's not starving. He's just might've eaten two pieces out of it. So. Anyway, well, then that bowl is officially empty it, at that point for a cat, yes, and especially yeah, him. So, <laughs> so he, he's a big, so we, big fat cross eyed cat who can't read Greek, so his name is Augustine. Um, but anyway, um, his uh, back to the Bible, the child that comes out of this is named Solomon, and so the, this name has presented translators with a lot of issues because according to strict grammatical rules, it's difficult to justify this traditional meaning of peace. Uh, however, if we go by strict rules of exegesis, where scripture interprets scripture, we can easily turn over to First Chronicles 22.9. Behold, a son shall be born to you. This is God talking to David, by the way, uh, who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all the surrounding enemies, for his name shall be Solomon. And I will give him peace and quiet in Israel to his day. So this is where the idea that Solomon means peace comes from. It's from the Bible. And so, um, you know, sometimes those of us who who study like the minutia and the grammatical rules and all that can get really caught up with in that side of things and forget the most simple explanation is sometimes the best. Uh, sometimes just read sometimes just read the bible yeah yeah exactly and you know if you're reading samuel you got to go to chronicles if you're reading kings you got to go to chronicles because that's the book that that helps fill out the picture so in verse uh, 25 and sent a message by david the prophet so his name would be called his name yeah so he called his name jedediah because of the lord so jedediah is the second name of solomon Jedidiah means beloved by the Lord, and it, it only appears here in this verse. Uh, the, there's a hint in the name uh, that God is already setting Solomon up as the next David because Jedidiah is actually built on the same root as the name David. And you hear it even in the English translation, David, beloved, mm. and beloved of the Lord. So, um, so. Saul's uh, Samuel's writer actually presents all of this as just boom, 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 consecutive events. And uh, there's a lot of reasons to believe there weren't. Those goats are having a fit. I am sorry. <laughs> Usually it's my kids. So, you know, I'm... <laughs> well, these are kids, just a different kind. <laughs> but, um, okay, so the, the reasons why we think that these may not have been consecutive events uh, is... We've seen the writer of Samuel massage the timeline before if it helps get his theological message across more effectively. Uh, first, go ahead. No, I was going to say that, the t- I mean, we've already established that the timeline in the Old Testament is basically your guess is as good as mine most of the time. Yeah, I mean, there's a few major events we can definitely say, hey, this is how it happened. But the minor events, the, the writers don't care. They just want you to know it did happen. And this is how it plays off that other uh, event. So 1 Chronicles 3.5 lists Solomon actually as the fourth son surviving from the David and Bathsheba marriage. And the son immediately before Solomon is named Nathan, which we're going to talk about um, the link between Nathan and Solomon. 
And that tells you how Bathsheba is viewing this, that God had intervened on her behalf. And the primary instrument that she saw as being used by God to intervene for her was the prophet Nathan, who confronted David in his sin and told David to straighten it up. And I, I think there's a lot of wives out there wishing that God would send a prophet to tell their husbands to straighten it up. And so, but to have Nathan appear again at the birth of this child, of Solomon's child, uh, birth, is, is very significant because the two of them are going to need, or well, Solomon's going to need Nathan, and we're going to get into all that. But I mentioned at the beginning when we started into the story, uh, I think it's a couple of weeks back now that this is a, a turning point in David because it's in this chapter we see David's language change. Uh, he's not, um, we don't have the political speech and it, it really began, it, it began when his son died. And we're going to see that that kind of, of authentic, pure kind of revealing speech from David is going to continue through the the rest of his life. The the bravado's gone. Uh there's a new sincerity right. in his words. But you know, he's been broken by his own hubris over all this and he had to remember he wasn't God over Israel. He was the king God had set over Israel and he had to bring that back into alignment. And the the problem is David was just like most of us. I know the lessons that I have learned in my faith. The most important ones have been the ones where I have created a situation for myself because I thought I was that smart. It's been the things I've done because I thought I could not just get away with it, but that I could, that it made sense to me. I justified it somehow. And my own pride is what broke me even more so than anything else. So, but. Before we move on from this chapter, I'm, I'm actually going to back up a little bit because almost as soon as the first um, episode on David and Bathsheba went live, I started getting messages and I started getting tagged in post. Um, a lot of people who wanted me to explain a little bit more about um, whether or not this was rape. And so I actually took time and they went more scriptural evidence. So basically what I did is I, I took some time to go back over the, some preceding stories and to dig a little deeper. And so I think this is a good time to, to revisit that. And so here's the thing. Here's my position on it. Even if you cannot cross that line into the legal speak of rape, I don't think there's any way you can get around the fact that this is spirit, uh, sexual abuse. So I want to present how the Bible demonstrates that. And the writer of Samuel actually is pretty clear on this. And so we've already talked about how there's references within the, the story itself to Genesis 3, 6, 12, 19, and 20. Those are already out there. And I think the listeners are already familiar, if you've been listening for a while, with how the Bible uses the, the, the themes of seeing something beautiful and taking, and how that began in, in Eden with Eve. And what we might miss is how these threads are connected by biblical writers. So we've got Samuel, the chronicler, 
uh, Matthew and even the book of Enoch ties all of these women together. And so I'm actually, I'm going to be ripping off a lot of Heiser here. So if you don't have uh, Reversing Herman, get it. It gets far more in depth. I'm leaving a lot of stuff out. And of course, I'm bringing some of my own, my own stuff in. So all of these stories, they revolve on that theme. Uh, women who are seen, who are found beautiful or good and are taken and are victims of evil. That, that's just what they're dealing with. Uh, so we have four women primarily that we can look at. And they're, they're brought together by Matthew, the writer of the gospel, in the genealogy of, the, of Jesus. So we have Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Only in the, the genealogy, she's called the wife of Uriah. And so I think most casual readers of the Bible will know that all of these women are involved in some kind of sexual scandal. Uh, Tamar posed as a prostitute in order to seduce her father-in-law. Uh, mm -hmm. Rahab was a prostitute. Ruth approaches, at the very least, <laughs> approaches and propositions a drunken Boaz. And the account is so brazen that there's a suggestion that there was an actual uh, sexual encounter, which you can hear about that on our uh, episode on Ruth. And then it concludes with, with Bathsheba. Now, what's interesting is out of these four stories, the two that are most closely linked are Tamar and Bathsheba. So if you don't remember the story of Tamar, I'm just going to hit some, some high point. It says that Judah married a, uh, a Canaanite woman. and it actually calls her the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, or to be more concise, the daughter of Shua. If we wanted to say that in Hebrew, we would say Bat Shua. And if we turned over to First Chronicles 3.5, we would find that Bathsheba's name is not record, recorded as Bathsheba. It is Bat Shua, the same words. And so automatically we have a link being established. Now, Heiser does bring up that this might be evidence that maybe Bathsheba was a, um, a Gentile woman because the daughter of Shua was the daughter of a Canaanite, so therefore she was not Jewish. But we've also discussed on this before, the way you become an Israelite, if you're not born into that nation, is that you accept the yoke of the Torah. You begin acting like an Israelite and you reject the gods that were before. So the fact that Bathsheba is observing the purity rituals of the Torah means that she is an Israelite woman at this point. So we're also told that David sees Batshua and he takes her into, he takes her, goes into her, and she conceives. So we see this language repeated in 1 Samuel 11. David sees Bathsheba, or Batshua, if we want to use the name that the chronicler used, he takes her, she conceives. Uh, the only difference is that, that Judah goes into Batshua. David has Batshua brought to him. However, if you go to Psalms 51, which we will be doing in, not next week, the following week, uh, and read the superscription there on Psalm 51, it, it reads, Nathan goes into David after David had gone into Bathsheba. And so the, the, superscription there is basically setting up Nathan's confrontation of David by God as an act so intimate and that strips David bare in the same way that rape does to its victims. Very interesting. We're going to talk about that. But Judah then goes on and he names his son that uh, Batshua uh, conceives. 
and it, his name is Ur, and this is the same root word that we get the word watchers, which we know is the name for the fallen angels in the book of Enoch, but it's also used of angels who are not fallen in the book of Daniel. And so we got this, this direct line from David and Bathsheba to Judah and Tamar to Genesis 6, the book of Enoch. All of these stories are tied in together. And the story of Judah and Tamar is further connected to Enoch in Genesis 6. Because there's, there's running themes and references in Judah and Tamar's books that, that are directly replicated in Enoch. Tamar's husbands are killed as punishment by God. So the first one, we don't, we don't know why he died. We're, we're just told God doesn't like him. So, you know, you want God to like you. Onan is killed for having sex with Tamar, but not giving her a son. And... Everyone who wants to, you know, I know we brought this up before, everyone who wants to use this as a, uh, an argument against masturbation, that's, this is so wrong because this is not what's happening in this story. What's happening in this story is basically coitus interruptus. So, um, but the idea that the son is being denied to her because it's going to disrupt Onan's inheritance for his sons. He doesn't like the fact that somebody else's sons might inherit what he thinks he deserves. And so we get this interesting parallel with David's actions in regard to Bathsheba. We, you know, we always saw where David had tried, we'd already seen, sorry, where David had tried to be more compassionate than God in extending chesed to Hanun back in chapter, what was it, chapter 10, and how David had adopted this, this language of God, setting himself up in God's uh, stead. Whenever he's talking to Mephibosheth, do not fear, I will give you land and prosperity. The things that God says whenever he's talking to the nation of Israel and to Abraham. And now he kills Bathsheba's first, first husband, just like God had killed Tamar's husbands. And he's, ha he's acting as if he has the right to take the life of someone who's in his way. And David, acting like God, actually reveals him to be acting more like Onan, who sexually abuses Bathsheba, uh, Onan who abuses Tamar, David who abuses Bathsheba. And so, you know, David is using Bathsheba for his sexual pleasure. And then he attempts to cover it up. And the father, um, and he, sorry, I'm trying to read my notes. Uh, he, he attempts to cover up that he's the father of the child that's going to disrupt his inheritance. We already talked about how any child he had with Bathsheba, especially when there was still a hint that Uriah could be the father, is going to wreak havoc throughout the kingdom. And so this cannot be. And so moving on, Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute later because um, Judah was supposed to give her his third son. But Judah didn't want to. And she's specifically described as a Gadesha, which is a temple prostitute. And one of the roles of the temple prostitute is to have sex with the king in order to produce a royal heir. So, again, mentioned before, but for those who just might be tuning in, in these uh, rituals that were performed where a new king was supposed to be conceived, the king would go into a temple prostitute. He would be indwelled by, the, by this, whatever deity that he's serving. And then the child that would come out of that union would have both a physical father and a spiritual father. And thus, because daddy, the physical father, had been created the same way, 
the child has two fathers and he's two third divine. The divinity that he inherits from the um, physical father and the divinity that is given through the spiritual father. And this is the role of a Kadesha or a, temp uh, a temple prostitute, which is what Tamar pretended to be. And most importantly, what most people fail to understand is this ritual is actually a recreation of the events in Genesis 6 and in the book of Enoch, in which the watchers, the fallen angel, the Ben Elohim, the sons of God, they came to earth to have children. And so Tamar's connected back to these rituals by being described as a Kadesha, a, a temple prostitute who could have been selected to participate in one of these uh, royal rituals. So when Tamar conceived, uh, conceived, Judah finds out and he commands that she be burned for playing a whore. Now, you didn't burn a woman for playing a whore. You, she was stoned to death if she was doing this against her father's wishes. The only women you burned were daughters of priests, which indicates that Tamar may actually have this connection back with some some priest we we are not told because the only priest actually um that this would apply to would be priest of, of israel although there are some um speculations and some stories that possibly tamar was a daughter of melchizedek or granddaughter but it's interesting to note that judah does not mention that he has set he had had sex with a prostitute he just wants tamar dead so Tamar sends Judah the signet, the seal, the rod, the staff, all the stuff, and says, hey, please identify. And we talked about the significance of that on our episodes with Tamar and also Judah and uh, Joseph in Egypt. So just mm -hmm. like Tamar sends this message to, to Judah and says, please identify, Bathsheba sends this message to David and says, I'm pregnant. And so we have women sending messages messages to the king now the thing is when tamar sends the message to judah judah immediately repents it's the first act of repentance recorded in the entire bible and it's because a woman speaks up how cool is that anyway i won't get lost on that but now the um the prophet of god comes to david and he confronts david and david repents and what's interesting in both these stories is both women become the wives of the men who had taken advantage of them. And now Tamar did seduce Judah to get back or to get what was hers, what she was owed from this man. Bathsheba, she was abused, but she also receives blessing by, by getting that son that you were talking about earlier. And both women give birth to the son who will reclaim the inheritance from out of all the other sons that were birthed to their, their fathers. So Tamar gives birth to Perez, and he's in the genealogy of David. Bathsheba's going to give um, birth to Solomon, who's in the genealogy of, of uh, Jesus. But mm -hmm. the, the most significant part here is that when Judah is confronted and when David is confronted, they both repent. And they, Judah becomes the first person to repent. This is why he has the royal house. and David becomes the model of repentance in Judaism, which we're going to go into when we get into Psalms 51. Now, this ties us directly back to Enoch. And 
what we have to remember is David looks down from his lofty roof, rooftop. We're told twice, twice in that verse that David is on this rooftop, just like the watchers look down from the heavens and from the top of their mountains. David sees a beautiful woman. The watchers, they see beautiful women. David takes Bathsheba, who is a daughter of a mighty man who will go on to become a Geborah. The, the watchers take the daughters of men. David knows he's wrong. Shemazah, say the word for me. Uh, Shemazah. Yeah, thank you. States that he will be guilty of a great sin in the book of Enoch. So they both know what they're doing is wrong. Neither one's doing this out of ignorance. The watchers would instruct men in the art of war. That's one of the big things that corrupts humanity is the way they, they teach people how to make weapons of war. Uh, David instructs Joab how to conduct war and spe most specifically how to kill Uriah. The watchers are forced to witness the death of their children in the flood. David's forced to watch witness the death of his child. Um, the watchers, they plead for mercy via Enoch. They send the prophet and say, you know, go, go to God and plead our case and, and have him have mercy on us. David actually pleads for mercy for himself. So God does not rescind his judgment against the watchers and their children. And God does not rescind the judgment against David and his children. And we should not forget that the watchers are also known, like I said at the beginning, the sons of God. David is a son of God. We saw that in chapter 7 by, by merit of first being an Israelite and also through adoption. Um, God would. Um, be so severe with David. It, it, it makes sense. Whenever you read this in the light of David in that position, mirroring the watchers, because David is cast in that same role. And the, the writer of Enoch, you know, if, we're, if he wrote this book after David, then he most definitely was looking at the story of David and, and absolutely picking up on the themes, picking up on keywords and modeling the sin of the watchers after David and Bathsheba. If well, and, go ahead. Oh, uh, did you go ahead and finish that point? I, I wanted to bring up one other. Well, I'll, I'll go ahead while I'm mm -hmm. I'm already on the mic. So, the, uh, <laughs> no. And if you look at it, it it, it it's a, a uh, the human the 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 story with David. Uh, you know, the humanity it, it counters the the story of the watchers because the watchers. Ask for forgiveness. They ask to be pardoned, mm -hmm. and they don't get it. And David does. He asks, and then he is forgiven. So that's kind of an interesting uh, contrast. That's the word I was looking for earlier uh, between the two stories. And, and that was exactly where I was going because because that's that's the whole point. the The angels don't get forgiven because they you know they've been in heaven. They've seen God's glory. If you've seen God face to face and you walk away from Him, I mean, honestly, you're you're stupid. Or you're straight up rebellious. Um, either one, not a good thing. Well, they're similar. <laughs> yeah. And so, but, but humanity, that's the gift that God extends to humanity is, yes, David still had the consequences of his actions. The children are going to die. Remember, not just this son. There's going to be three more kids because David himself had said, the man who did this thing deserves to pay four times. He spoke the judgment with his own mouth. And God said, let's go. You want to be God? You want to play? Like, you've got the same authority. 
I will listen to what you said and I will give you exactly what you asked for. And so, but the condemnation is removed. God mitigated the, the consequence because remember when Nathan had confronted David, after David repents, David says, you know, I have sinned against God. He had confesses. Then Nathan tells David, okay, so you're not going to die. You won't die. And, you know, Nathan hadn't said that, that David was going to die, but it was implicit within uh, Nathan's message. And so this serves as a warning not to think too highly of yourself. And it also is a hope that God does extend grace and mercy to humanity that, that is not available to any other being. This is, this is for us. And so it, the, the warning in this is that we shouldn't fall prey to, to David's sin. You know, we shouldn't think higher of ourselves as, than we are. And we shouldn't try to be more righteous than God, like David was trying to do with Hey Noon. Um, when, when Enoch goes and pleads to God on behalf of the watchers, God tells Enoch, no, they're supposed to be interceding for you, not man interceding for angels. The, the system is backwards. This is not how it works at all. And so God says that there's room for humanity to repent that the angels don't have. And I think that uh, we need to be aware that, and I've probably said this 20 times in the previous um, episodes, we don't get to downplay what happened here. Right. This, this story is set in the middle of every other sexual scandal out there and if we pretend like oh it's no big deal because david still wrote psalms then we set ourselves up for the mess we're in in the church today with every other sexual scandal because we lose all credibility we we just took the biblical backing where god says there is a consequence there there are things bad things that are going to happen because men choose to do this or even women if they choose to sin Bad things are going to happen. It's not going to be limited to just the people directly involved. There's going to be a ripple effect to everyone surrounding. And so God, God never denies that. So I, I really get frustrated when we talk about this as if, oh, it's just a blip on the screen. And because it's not. It's part of a larger narrative. And as a woman, a narrative that I find very encouraging because the narrative overall is God loves women. He hates it when we're abused. He intervenes on our behalf. And out of these deep, dark times, the darkest times that women can experience, he actually raises women up and he glorifies them and he honors them and he sets them, you know, Bathsheba, who went through this, she's, the, she's in the lineage of, De of, of Jesus there in Matthew. And the thing is, it's not even presented as, oh, look, she's the queen of, queen of Israel. She's the, the wife of David. It's presented, no, she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite because we're never supposed to forget that she endured this so that she could become who she was. And so when, when we talk about these stories, we, we need to be honest because that's what gives them the teeth. That's what gives them the, the ability to speak to women who have been in these situations where so often, um, you know, when we talk about rape and we talk about sexual violence in the church, people don't know where to begin. They, they don't know be how to 
address this with women who who have been there. And so when I wanted to talk about this in a way that doesn't deny or downplay what what David did, but also there there's hope for people who have made mistakes and people who have been the victim of those mistakes. And so um We've got a few minutes, so I figure we might as well, uh, let, let's give a little bit of background on Psalm 51 and get us set up for next week um, so we can ch- okay. jump into the, the text. Um, Psalm 51, you know, it, it's, it's originally been attributed to David, uh, traditionally. Uh, that's part of that superscription that we read earlier. Again, with the Psalms, superscriptions, they're debated. We don't know whether or not uh, they are... Uh, were part of the original writing if they were late, added later by an editor and there's a question if the editor even knew what they were talking about so one argument is that instead of reading these as psalms of david they're psalms in the style of david or they're psalms remembering david and how we date the psalm is and how seriously sorry how seriously we take the superscription really is a matter of how we date the psalm so mm-hmm. we've got some clues within the psalm that give us a lot of dating on uh, where we should put it. And we're going to talk about those as we come to them in the verses. And we're going to begin actually reading this from a traditional perspective. And the idea that David was the one who actually wrote the psalm after he was confronted by Nathan. And one of the reasons why we're going to do that is because there is that big question, particularly by survivors of sexual abuse. how can we? read this psalm and and appreciate what's in there when if we put that in our context you know if if, let me personalize it if i was going to put it in my context then this would be my ex-husband writing the psalm so it doesn't really sound like something i would want to sing um but that's how a lot of survivors view this and so actually going back and saying, okay, how do we how do we approach the psalm is going to be part of the discussion. Now, Rabbi Yonah, um, he refers to this as the psalm of repentance. Uh, this is in a book in the English, it's called The Gates of Repentance, which was written as an explanation of the principles um, of repentance. And it's the foundation of all repentance. And this is a great book. You can get, there's a link, I'll put it in the show notes, that um, you can actually read everything, uh, read this book online. Uh, It's an app for your phone. I love it. But there are, he offers 20 principles of repentance, and a lot of them are pulled directly out of the psalm. Uh, And that's just the first chapter of the book. But to give you an idea of what's in there, uh, there's the regret, leaving of sin, grief. Um, those are all um, breaking the physical desire of sin, the improvement of one's action, the need to examine, know, and recognize the greatness and punishment of sin. And so, like I said, there's 20 of them, so I'm not going to go into all of them. And I think, though, if you look at all the principles, you're going to see them in Psalms 51. And mm-hmm. now, a lot of times when you look at something that detailed, there's this idea that, oh, well, that's really legalistic and that's a lot of rules to follow. But I've got to tell you, when I read through it, 
I found it really refreshing because there's, we live in a time where we don't really talk about what repentance is. We, right. we act like it's just some kind of, oh God, I'm sorry. We, we, we try to cut out that whole grieving process. We try to cut out the whole change of behavior and action. Um, when you read through Psalm 51, you see David was hurt by his sins. I mean, he is in anguish over what he has done. And he recognizes that he hasn't just sinned against Bathsheba. He has sinned against God. And he's guilty before God for hurting this woman the way he has. And, I, and what I found when I, when I read through this book by Rabbi Yonah is it, it really is an explanation of what Christians might be more familiar with uh, from Bonhoeffer, where Bonhoeffer makes that distinction between free grace and cheap grace. And so that the, the idea of repentance is even acknowledging that these acts of mercy by God cost God something. Yes, they're free to you, but they are costly gifts extended to you. And that's part of what Psalms 51 reveals. And it's also a real... Go ahead. Well, and the other thing is, um, by reviewing that, and also you mentioned that that book's by a rabbi and that you know most of these principles are, are derived from Psalm 51, also goes to it reinforces that idea that Jesus was not preaching anything revolutionary. Right. Um he he was he was continuing and and again you know I've I've mentioned it before the difference between a revolutionary and a radical is a radical wants to return things to how they're supposed to mm-hmm. be. A revolutionary wants to to make a whole new system. Right. And so when Jesus was telling people to repent or John the Baptist was telling people to repent this was not a foreign concept to well-studied, well-read Jewish people. Absolutely. Uh, well, and that, that's the, the crazy part, because it, and this is one good example of the difference between Greek thought and, and Hebrew thought. When you talk about the Greek word uh, for, for repentance, you'll hear this in, in you know, your youth group and from sermons. Oh, it means to turn around. Okay. But what am I turning around from? The Hebrew is to return. So what a different picture to say that when I repent, I'm not just turning away from sin, which is how I've usually heard it taught. Oh, oh, well, you need to repent. You turn away from your sin. Yes, that's one aspect. But where am I going after that? The, the, The Hebrew is I need to return to my father and creator who loves me. Now there's some, you know, I have a destination. I'm, I'm going somewhere. I'm not just practicing avoidance. And when you just practice avoidance, that doesn't, that doesn't give you any kind of guide. And so right. the, this idea and it, that repentance is new and that it's something so completely foreign to the Old Testament, so wrong. So absolutely wrong. As a matter of fact, that was one of the things that I loved about this book. It, it's a scripture, a few words of explanation, another scripture, another few, a few, a few more words of explanation. And, and it's just the whole book on and on like this, bringing all of these different parts of the Old Testament that talk about forgiveness and grace and mercy and how God is a loving God, all from the Old Testament. Yeah, and, and to, to tack on to what you were saying about the difference between turning away and returning to something— mm-hmm. 
there there's a there's a saying and I like this because it's uh I know it's not from the Bible but it's I don't know where this quote originated but it's like to saying no to something is easy if you're saying yes to it you know, or saying no well is to say yes to something else so completely that the other thing's not even an option uh, I'm butchering the quote but well but no I, I, but it's that kind of idea that exactly we're not having to worry about just like you said, avoidance and suppression, Mm -hmm. we actually have something we're moving toward. And naturally, if we're moving toward God, we'll move away from the things that are not of him. I mean, it's a pretty simple explanation. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, I think we, too many of us, uh, you know, when when we get in these, these fundamental legalistic, you know, things, we're trying to avoid sin, but we don't know where we're Mm -hmm. going. Mm Mm-hmm. And so we, we're not pointed at anything. We're basically just walking backwards. We haven't actually <laughs> turned around. And, and so that, that's kind of uh, my take on well, it. Well, it, and it fits. I mean, when you go over to Proverbs, what the Proverbs tell us, you know, where there is no vision, people cast off restraint. Uh, so mm-hmm. the idea, that word for vision, chasson, it's that, that prophetic vision, that guiding vision that takes you back to God. And so, mm-hmm. so how do you find restraint and self-discipline? It's by seeking God. And, yep. you know, a quick funny story. Uh, so a friend of mine, her, her, um, her dog died. And I know that's a weird way to start a funny story. But she lived in town, and I live out here in the country. So I went and got the, the body and was brought it back to the farm and was going to bury it while my husband comes home. And he sees this Amazon box and he starts picking at the tape and he said, oh, somebody sent us something. And I'm standing there talking to God. I have a three hour conversation with God in like three seconds because time works that way with God. Because I had to ask myself, what's the kindest, most loving act here? The funniest one would be to let him open the box. And during those three seconds, I, I had to reveal to him that this was not contents he wanted to open. So, you know, my view in that moment, and this is a silly story, my view in that moment where my flesh would say, let's get a good laugh, because I wanted to be more Christ-like, more loving, was to actually warn him. So th- these are just simple ways that turning towards God actually gets you out of and probably saved us a big fight that night. But anyway, uh, so this is, you've got to have a vision. Vision directs everything, even simple, stupid things like that. So that's, that's the word I want to leave our listeners with. <laughs> All right. If you happen to have a dead dog in the box, warn your spouse. That's the, that's the takeaway yeah, that, from this week's episode. That's right? what God wants from us. Yeah, warn them every time. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right well that seems like a good place to pause everyone thank you so much for being i, I feel like I, I feel like we just concluded this the way that burn after reading ends. <laughs> that there's just this long set up for a single punchline set up for the single punchline i feel like that's kind of how we landed i know this particular episode well you know for... and i know that was not on purpose um, people who so, know us well should know that when we deal with dark, <laughs> deep subjects and things that are the troubling, we're going to rebound with inappropriate humor. That's just how it goes. So <laughs> that's the, yes, that's we we laugh. Um, 
at a lot of things that, that shouldn't be laughed. Probably shouldn't, but that's but that's how we de- that's how we cope with our emotions. We're probably just that stunted. But yeah. the uh, anyway, before I start telling stories, <laughs> I'm going to shut us down okay. and uh, let everyone know. Hey, if you want to be part of whatever we have going on here, um, Raven Creek SC is the website to get to us. Raven Creek SC on all the social media. You can be part of the conversation. Um, check us out. Be part of what we got going on. Uh, on the website, big announcement. Yes. Um, recently launched is Answers to Giants, Answers to Giant Questions with uh, Tim Stedman. I almost called him by the wrong name. Um, I don't know don't if he prefers that. Tim or TJ. I've seen his handle be each on it's Facebook. Tim I'm right not now. sure which one he prefers. It's Tim right now is how he's <laughs> listed. Um, I'm excited. I have not got a chance to listen to the first episode yet. It is on the website and soon will be on uh, on iTunes or Apple Podcast. Go check that out. Um, I, I heard like the first few minutes and it's great because he and his co-host have the most Aussie accents uh, that I've heard in a while. But don't be discouraged. They are comprehensible. <laughs> Um, but it's fantastic to listen to, uh, the bit that I got to listen to. I can't wait till I can get a, you know, a good stretch of work to, to have that on. So that being said, hopefully I didn't oversell something that's not going to pan out. I'm kidding. Tim, you're great. We're glad to have you on board. And, uh, yeah, anyone wants to find him, ravencreeksc.com or, uh, Facebook, uh, slash answers to giant questions. So. Other than that, Emily, do you have anything else to add? I was just going to say, we've also got uh, Joshua Sherman with Tendy Arnett, Luke T. Harrington Harrington with uh, Changed My Mind, and The Commentarians with Joe Zaragoza. So we're getting quite the little podcasting family going on. And yeah, it's a little social club of things, if you will. People who like the Bible. So, So. (laughs) all right. Well, that sounds good. Everyone, we'll see you next week. I'm going to stop talking and uh, have a fun weekend. Oddities Podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.